Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So ADR, what do you know about Three Mile Island? I think it's the most famous nuclear accident in in the U.S., maybe all of North America. Yeah, and it kind of colored the United States' perception of nuclear power for decades. It was huge news when it happened. It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare. But a government official said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date. Back up a second, and what is Three Mile Island? It's a nuclear uh, plant in the center of Pennsylvania near the city of Harrisburg. Back in 1979, one of its nuclear cores started to melt down, which basically means that the container around the nuclear fuel broke. Officials say some 50 to 60,000 gallons of radioactive water escaped into the reactor building and that the radioactivity penetrated the plant's walls. Recently, I talked to someone who arrived at Three Mile Island while it was in crisis. Al Bates, a nuclear engineer who at the time was fresh out of university. A couple of days later, I got a call. Uh, We want you to help in the recovery of Three Mile Island. Basically, what happened at Three Mile Island was a valve fail. No big deal. Within less than a second, the reactor's control rods um, automatically inserted in the core and shut down completely the nuclear chain reaction. Okay, so no big deal. Everything under control. Something went wrong. So the nuclear fuel assembly shut down. It all could have ended there. But there's something that's really interesting about nuclear reactors. Once they're shut down, they actually don't stop producing heat. In fact, they produce a lot of heat. So what happened next made the small valve failure a much bigger deal. There was human error. The on-staff site at Three Mile Island basically did the opposite of what they should have done. They turned off um, the water flow into the reactor because they actually thought it was full. So the staff was worried that the reactor was overfilling with water. The reactor was not full, and in fact, in the ensuing couple of hours, the water got so low in the reactor that the fuel and the zirconium rods that hold the fuel um, started uh, melting. So when I got there, you know, the, the question was, well, where is the core and what condition is the core in? The nuclear core, where the nuclear material is and where the nuclear reaction happens. They literally didn't know where it was inside the building where it was held. It was probably the same feeling that a firefighter gets when he goes into a burning building. I was excited about being part of a team that would, you know, help in this disaster. If somehow the nuclear waste had escaped, the results could have been devastating. Baltimore is less than 100 miles away, and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. are each only a little farther. Millions of people could have gotten sick. But that's not what happened. Al and his team were able to cool down the melting core and little by little bring the situation under control. They cleaned up all the nuclear contamination at the plant, and Three Mile Island kept operating for another 40 years. Al's been a nuclear engineer ever since. So why are we talking about Three Mile Island? Well, because nuclear power is, for the most part, something that feels very much in the past here in the U.S., 
Only two nuclear power plants have opened in the U.S. since 1996. But Al Bates is among the many scientists who argue that nuclear also needs to be part of our future and that nuclear energy might be one of our best weapons against climate change. These days, Al works at the San Onofre nuclear power plant in Southern California, which is being decommissioned or closed down. That means California is burning more fossil fuels. I recently went to San Onofre to try to figure out how I should feel about it closing. Is the closure of a nuclear power plant cause for celebration or a step in the wrong direction? This is Vice News Reports. I'm Ariel Zimros. And I'm Vice News correspondent Keegan Hamilton. So, okay, nuclear power has been around since the Second World War, right? I, I need a refresher. So how does it actually work? I actually asked Al Bates, the nuclear engineer we talked to at the beginning of the episode, to explain that to me. He's been a nuclear engineer for over 40 years, building and operating nuclear plants. There's a famous equation from Einstein that says energy equals mass times velocity of light squared equals mc squared. So what that means is that when a nuclear reaction occurs, a very large amount of energy is produced for a tiny bit of matter which disappears. You basically have to have a material that will, when a neutron hits it, it's going to split apart and and become two smaller pieces. That material is enriched uranium, which is basically uranium that has more of the isotope uranium-235. That's the material that's essential for making a nuclear chain reaction. That uranium is like a naturally occurring element, right? It's, It's toxic to humans, but it comes from the ground and actually, you know, you can mine it. Exactly. And that uranium gets packed into these tiny little pellets that are smaller than your finger. And then a bunch of those pellets are put into a big package. It's about 16 feet in diameter. And that package is called a nuclear core. And it's at the heart of any nuclear power plant. Then the nuclear core is filled with water, immersing those uranium pellets. There are different designs, but this can look like a giant cylinder floating in a deep pool. The process of the reaction causes the water to heat up. Energy from that one nuclear reaction goes into the water. But now there's hundreds of thousands, actually millions of those chain reactions going on at the same time. The reaction heats the water and turns it into steam. And that steam is used to turn a turbine, which generates electricity. If that sounds familiar, it's because gas and coal power plants basically operate the exact same way. Only instead of using nuclear to heat the water, they burn fossil fuels. The first nuclear power plant is basically powering the lab that created it. But eventually, it's being used to power whole towns. In the middle of the last century, nuclear power was kind of seen as this futuristic tech that would usher in a new era. Yes, the atom is on its way to brighten our towns and to help manufacture our most dependable and indispensable household service, electric power. Nuclear was this clean, seemingly inexhaustible source of cheap energy. By 1970, there were 90 nuclear plants operating in 15 countries around the world. The plant that Al Bates works at today, San Onofre, was built around then in 1968. You recently visited San Onofre, right? Yeah, I'd heard about the place growing up from my mom, who's from the area. 
she grew up seeing it out the window of her car driving up and down the freeway there between San Diego and Los Angeles. It's this huge dome structure right off the highway on the coast. You, you can't miss it. Come on. Okay. Here we go. Just getting onto the site is a process. First off, the security there is super tight. There are armed guards and gates, and then once you're up close, you get a sense of how massive these containment domes really are. They're just towering overhead. And of course, there are signs everywhere warning about radioactive danger. Al Bates met me at San Onofre. We're at um, the San Onofre uh, Nuclear Generating Station, and uh, we're going to be heading into what's called the restricted area, which is where really all the decommissioning takes place. And okay, we're going to see a lot of remnants of buildings that have been knocked down. There's an eerie sound you hear at San Onofre because even though the plant is not operational, it's still connected to the state's power grid. It's so loud that you can hear the, the crackling of the electricity. That's correct. In the background. So you're just saying that this is about 22,000 volts pumping through? No, actually 220,000 220, volts. Yeah. Al also showed me where San Onofre's nuclear waste is stored. You go through an extra layer of security at the power plant, and then you walk out into this sort of flat, concrete area with all these metal cooling vents popping up every few paces. We can feel, actually, the heat coming out of that. Oh, yeah, it's like a warm breeze. It feels like a hairdryer is blowing out of this thing. Yeah. That's how warm the air is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. This lid is 35,000 pounds, and it's dense concrete and steel. So the radiation um, that's contained inside um, the canisters um, is actually safely shielded by all this immense amount of concrete and uh, steel. By weight, how much total nuclear fuel is being stored in this area? Uh, around three million pounds. Three million pounds seems like a whole lot. Just a few years after San Onofre came online, anti-nuclear activism and awareness was starting to change public opinion. The 1970s were the birth of the environmental movement in the U.S. And by the middle of the decade, Organizations like the Sierra Club and the Natural Resources Defense Council were raising concerns that nuclear power might not be as safe and clean as advertised. Then in 1979, you had Three Mile Island, which we talked about before. And in 1986, Chernobyl, which was dramatized in a recent HBO series. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal. Concrete, flesh. Now Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Chernobyl was the worst nuclear disaster in history. Basically, one of the plant's nuclear cores got so hot that it caught fire and blew up the building it was in. For more than a week, the core burned in open air, spewing nuclear contaminants the whole time. Because of the nature of a nuclear accident, it was sort of invisible, right? Like, authorities were able to lie about the risks because you don't necessarily know when you're being exposed to radiation. So I think all of that really adds to this sense of fear. It's what is in everyone's mind when they worry about, you know, worst case scenarios for a nuclear plant accident. Nuclear fallout landed over Europe, cancer rates spiked in the region, and not just for the generation that witnessed Chernobyl, but for the, the next generation as well. And there's this whole area right now that's uninhabitable, and we, we don't know when humans will be able to return to that area. Right, and the fear of another Chernobyl was on people's minds as the U.S. kept building more power plants. By 1990, 20% of the energy in the U.S. was provided by nuclear power. 
but nuclear's image just got worse and worse, in part because of a hit TV show. Oh, I know this one. You're, you're talking about The Simpsons, aren't you? Right, and thanks to The Simpsons, nuclear image kind of got worse and worse over the 90s. When you talk, think about The Simpsons, you see Homer behind his control panel. Homer, now we're going to simulate a power surge in Core Sector 8. What do I do? What do I do? In the name of God, you've got to tell me. What, what is his job? And he's like the nuclear safety guy at the power plant. Safety inspector? That irresponsible oaf? It's best not to think about it. Even though Al Bates in real life is a very capable, super smart guy, The Simpsons is essentially saying that he and Homer have the same job. That's actually terrifying to think about. And so nuclear plants in the U.S. start closing down. Some just because they're getting old. Some because of public opinion. Some because they're malfunctioning. Then something happened that reminded the whole world how dangerous nuclear power can be. 8.9 magnitude was the fifth largest earthquake in history. In 2011, a giant earthquake hit Japan. An earthquake so strong it literally shifted the Earth's axis by about 25 centimeters. A tsunami followed, which overwhelmed a nuclear power plant called Fukushima Daiichi. Wednesday morning dawned with yet another fire at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Three of the plant's six nuclear cores melted down. In the end, 160,000 nearby residents were evacuated from their homes. At least one person died from radiation poisoning. To this day, some areas near Fukushima remain off-limits because of concerns about high radiation levels. A year after Fukushima, Al Bates was working at the San Onofre nuclear power plant on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. At the time, the plant was fully operational, pouring 2,200 megawatts of electricity into the power grid. That's more than enough to power a city of a million people all on its own. Until one day... There was a, a fault in a component called the steam generators. There was a leak. Radiation leak at an American nuclear power plant, San Onofre, 45 miles north of San Diego, California. Seven million Americans live within 50 miles of San Onofre. Basically, what happened at San Onofre is that one of the steam generators at the plant had a faulty component. Some radiation leaked, but according to Al, none of it escaped into the atmosphere. Remember, this was only a year after Fukushima, so nuclear catastrophe was still on everyone's minds. And soon after that leak, San Onofre was permanently closed. Because the San Onofre plant was too dangerous? Well, according to Al, closing San Onofre wasn't about safety. It was about economics. Rather than make complicated and expensive repairs, the company that ran the plant decided to shut it down. That was in 2013. And for the past few years, Al has been part of the team overseeing the demolition of the San Onofre nuclear power plant. So that rumbling you hear in the distance, uh -huh. that's not Godzilla. That's not thunder. That's actually some of the massive equipment that we use to dismantle the plant. So tearing down a nuclear power plant, what does that actually look like? It basically feels like a massive construction site. There's lots of heavy equipment and contractors, guys in hard hats, piles of debris. Tearing down a nuclear plant is a huge process that takes years. That pile of a metal, the boneyard, and that really, like, it's a striking image because this is like the skeleton of a nuclear plant. you got to figure out what to do with the remains. The reactor itself has been, uh, the internals are being cut up, meaning the, the things that actually held the nuclear fuel is being cut up into pieces, and eventually the reactor vessel itself will be cut up. 
Now, cutting up a nuclear reactor just sounds inherently dangerous. Yeah, I guess the preeminent safety precaution is the fact that all of this work, amazingly, is being done underwater. There are robotic saws so that we can actually cut slices out of what used to house the reactor core, pick them up underwater, and place them into vessels underwater. And so yeah, right now, one of the last remaining nuclear power plants in California is getting torn down. It seems to me like over the last decade, attitudes around nuclear energy have started to shift pretty dramatically in the U.S. Like, I personally see a lot of climate activists talking about nuclear power as a necessary part of the energy mix if we want to move away from fossil fuels, which, by the way, kill people all the time through things like pollution. Exactly. And there's been a, a pretty big public shift in, in public sentiment. It's really kind of a schism in the environmentalist movement, because for a lot of people, the bigger threat they're worried about is climate change. And nuclear energy, at least once a plant is up and running, it seems like a pretty clean alternative source of energy. There's still one more nuclear plant left in California, and 54 plants still left operating in the United States. And right now, it's looking like many of those plants may continue to operate for years to come, or we wait for ways to fight climate change. And so the question remains, is it really worth it to rely on such a risky energy source? And is it kind of hubris to think that we can plan for every possible scenario? That's after the break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When I've thought of nuclear energy more recently, it's mostly been in the context of the war in Ukraine. Really early on in the war, the Russian army occupied the Chernobyl site, which freaked a lot of people out. Because if Chernobyl had gotten hit by a bomb, the result would have been a whole other type of catastrophe. Since then, the Russian army has occupied other nuclear sites. So honestly, things still seem pretty scary to me. Yeah, it, it is scary. And you're not the only one who felt that way. My name is Kate Brown, and I'm the Thomas M. Siebel Distinguished Professor in the History of Science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Kate Brown has written a lot about the aftermath of nuclear catastrophes. This year, she's in the Netherlands teaching, and lately, the news has been freaking her out because she's seeing nuclear power plants being used like never before. Kate has spent a lot of time in nuclear zones, including Chernobyl. 
but she's never felt in danger from nuclear exposure like she does now. For the first time I went out the other day, I bought prophylactic iodine in case anything happens. I want to be able to take iodine so that I don't breathe in and my thyroid doesn't stockpile radioactive iodine. I've never done that before. The scariest thing for Kate is seeing how the Russian army is weaponizing nuclear plants in Ukraine in a way that's never really happened in the history of the world. The first day of the Ukraine war, Russian forces made a beeline into the Chernobyl zone to take that territory. And they also, several weeks later, took the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, a a massive nuclear power plant in south-central Ukraine. This is in violation of all international regulations. They're using the nuclear power plant as a place from which to attack Ukrainian forces. And they're figuring that Ukrainian forces won't fire back. But there has been an exchange of fire there. There have been reports that the Ukrainian nuclear engineers operating these Russian-occupied plants are working at gunpoint. At the Zaporizhia plant, at least two workers were beaten to death. If something were to happen and the pumps failed, or the basins cracked and spilled all the water, or if the electricity that operated those pumps failed and the backup generators failed, you know, we wouldn't have much time, 28, 48 hours, before that water would evaporate. With no more water to cool things down, the casing around the nuclear fuel rods would catch fire and start to burn, or literally melt down. And then we would have this scenario, similar to a meltdown situation that we saw in Fukushima and Chernobyl, where we have radioactive fuel on fire and emitting radioactive gas, radioactive ash. That radioactive pollution could travel for tens or even hundreds of miles, depending on the wind, contaminating plants, animals, and humans in its path. What's happening in Ukraine is thousands of miles away. But Kate thinks we should be worried about nuclear energy in the U.S. too. Because in this country, we have a huge problem with nuclear waste. Basically, we don't know where to put it. The federal government had selected a site in Nevada called Yucca Mountain. That was going to be the main waste repository. And it was close to opening. But then activists and politicians from Nevada pushed back hard, claiming that the site leaked. And in the end, they got the federal government to back down. For the time being, all of the nuclear waste that's created by power plants is being stored on site at those plants. Storing waste on site at nuclear plants is a crazy idea. So we have nuclear waste stored at the base of Cape Cod, where I live, near Boston. And we have stronger and stronger storms as big northeasters come through uh, with climate change. We have nuclear waste stored in San Onofre, at Diablo Canyon, again on the Pacific coast of California, um, all along the Great Lakes. With more and more extreme weather, these are dangerous places to store uh, decades of radioactive waste. The fact that we're currently looking for places to house this kind of waste, that that wasn't built into the system initially, that that seems incredibly short-sighted. What we're learning with this war in Ukraine is that nuclear reactors have been stress tests for tsunamis and earthquakes and planes falling on them, but nothing so mundane as conventional warfare. If a a bomb drops on them, if electricity fails to go to those plants, um, we're looking at a situation that would dwarf Chernobyl. 
Even if there isn't a war on U.S. soil, there are other kinds of violence in this country that could cause a disaster at a nuclear plant. We have a lot of problem with domestic terrorism in this country. And I, I think nuclear power makes us yet more vulnerable in this already fraught political landscape that we have. Every nuclear plant in the U.S. is basically a militarized zone, in part to protect from exactly this kind of scenario. I actually went on a boat to see California's last nuclear plant, but we could only get a couple miles away. There's like a perimeter that you can't go past or guys with guns come and stop you. I remember a few years ago, Vice did this piece on Yucca Mountain, and initially I was supposed to be the correspondent for that shoot, but I wasn't allowed to go because I'm Canadian and it would have taken too long to get me clearance. Uh, so they sent an American instead. You stealing our nuclear secrets, ADR? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> such a liability. <laughs> So today in the U.S., we've still got 54 nuclear power plants that are operating, and a lot of them are old, some over 40 years old. And now power companies that run them are asking the government permission to keep them open for another 25 plus years in some cases. Um, is that is that an OK thing? Like, how am I supposed to think about these lifespans? Because that seems bad. Well, according to Kate, some of those plants might already be dangerous. Fukushima plant was built by General Electric, and that was a GE design. And we have about 31 nuclear reactors in the United States that are of that similar GE designs and of the same vintage. From the energy company's perspective, they don't have that much to lose. If there is a, you know, a big accident, they only have to pay a small portion of the cleanup costs. The rest of the costs and the the, the health risks, the, the damage to the population in terms of public health falls on the shoulders of the American taxpayers, not on the power companies. Nuclear power is only as safe as the worst case scenarios that the plant builders expect and plan ahead for. But what if something unprecedented happens and something we've never heard of or seen before happens? Then what? Sometimes when Al is talking about nuclear safety, he sounds a little overconfident. Like, take the Three Mile Island incident from the beginning of this episode. Something really scary happened that hardly anyone knows about. As Al and his team were trying to get the situation under control, they heard a sound. And all of a sudden we get a spurious actuation of a radiation monitor signal. In other words, an alert sounded, saying that radiation had just spiked to dangerous levels. We all had to uh, don full-face respirators. So you can imagine trying to work through the scenario of turning this pump off, monitoring the reactor core. We sounded like Daffy Duck with these full-face respirators on. Nobody could hear anybody. It was kind of comical, but not so much comical. Al sounds surprisingly nonchalant about a false alarm for something that could have killed him and his whole team. Do you think maybe he's a little too overconfident? So Vice News Reports producer Jesse Alejandro Cottrell was present during one of our conversations and actually asked Al about this. Do you think that it's hubris to think that we can plan for everything and be completely safe when it comes to nuclear? And I'm very heartened by the fact that when I look across the landscape of reactors that are being built right now, and a great many of them are, are being built, for example, in China, that they're building the reactors to the Western image. In fact, they, they bought the Western reactor designs. You know, 
something about the the whole, you know, lauding of the Western design thing makes me kind of nervous, right? Like, it it just sounds a little off to me. I mean, I'm not an engineer. Maybe he's right. Maybe that kind of design really is superior. But again, this is just another moment where he sounds a little overconfident. And, and that makes me worry more, not less. Al is a nuclear engineer, and he probably like feels in his heart that they've done everything that they possibly can to prepare for the worst case scenario and that they've got everything under control. But it still occurs to me, like, what happens when they encounter something that they didn't plan for? Like, what what if the worst case scenario is worse than anything they ever expected? And that at the end of the day, like, you just have to keep in mind that all kinds of energy production includes some kind of risk, whether it's a fossil fuel plant or a nuclear plant. There's some inherent danger there. Well, let's talk about the fears. So you start with deaths per kilowatt hour of electricity generated. That's Stephen Chu, a former U.S. Secretary of Energy who now teaches at Stanford. Talking to him, I was really struck by this idea he mentioned, deaths per kilowatt hour. It's a gruesome way of looking at it, but it's an honest way of looking at it. So coal ranks above all else because of the air pollution. What he means is that on average, using nuclear power kills way fewer people than its main competitor, fossil fuels. And that's important because renewable sources of energy aren't ready to fill the void when nuclear plants shut down. History's shown that when we close these nuclear power plants, what happens is you end up using more fossil fuel, notably gas. Fossil fuels like gas and coal put a lot of nasty pollution up into the air that can cause serious health problems in surrounding communities. Small particulate matter is very, very deadly. Uh, Lung ailments, respiratory ailments, acid rain, it lands somewhere between a thousand and a few thousand times more deaths per kilowatt hour. Natural gas is next. You know what's third? Hydro. Once in a while, a dam breaks and people drown. Mm -hmm. Nuclear is just a little bit more dangerous than wind and solar. It's like when someone is afraid of flying, but they're perfectly fine with driving in a car, even though statistically you're way more likely to die in a car accident than you are to die in an airplane crash. Right now, it feels like public sentiment is starting to shift on nuclear. Just recently, for example, Germany just announced that it won't close down its last nuclear power plants, which is a huge deal because Germany was leading the way to end nuclear. And here in California, Governor Gavin Newsom just announced that the state is going to try to extend the life of the state's last nuclear power plant. And the Biden administration just dedicated $6 billion to keep nuclear plants that are at risk of closing running for years to come. It feels like we have these two not great choices in front of us, right? There's nuclear danger or climate change danger. What about us just using less energy, right? Making a sacrifice and altering our comfort levels a little bit. Is that possible? I mean, right, that sounds good in theory. Like, what if everyone just, like, stopped using the internet on the weekends or your fridge shuts off for a couple hours each night? I mean, yeah. I, I live in California and we have rolling blackouts because of the fires here. This is an important message from Southern California Edison. Please conserve energy today after 4 p.m. to reduce the need for rotating power outages. Quote unquote, rotating power outages. Blackouts is what most people would call them. Mostly they're annoying, a mild inconvenience. But what about cases where people rely on medical devices in their homes and they need those to survive? Or what if it's really, really hot in California, like over 110 degrees, like it has been recently, 
and you need an air conditioner to, to not die. Right. Like, obviously, there are tons of reasons that you need electricity beyond your normal, everyday conveniences. Absolutely. No, that, that's true. So what seems more likely is that we'll continue having this hybrid model of using a mix of energy sources, right, including nuclear. Because of that, it doesn't seem like the specter of a, a nuclear disaster potentially happening is going to go away anytime soon. We have to get used to a certain amount of risk in terms of our energy mix, and we have to have faith in people like Al and other experts and hope that they are really thinking of every possible and impossible scenario. But, you know, listening to Kate Brown, the MIT professor, like there is, you know, the prepper part of me that wants to go out and buy iodine tablets right now. Just last year, Indian Point, a nuclear plant about 36 miles north of Manhattan closed. It was a long-time campaign to shut it down. Each one of the plant's three cores generated more energy than all of New York State's wind turbines and solar panels combined. And because it closed, downstate New York is burning more fossil fuels than it was before. As someone who lives in Brooklyn, how does that make you feel, ADR? Uh, Not great. Honestly, I hate it. I hate it all. I don't love the idea of using more fossil fuels. Um, I also don't love the idea of nuclear power. I, 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 We are just in an impossible situation and it sucks. And I guess I care about stopping the use of fossil fuels more. So, yeah, this sucks. Do you, do you sleep any easier knowing there's not a nuclear plant just a, a little ways north of you that could melt down? Honestly, not really. I didn't even know it was there, so... <laughs> Uh, no, I don't feel I don't feel safer. I had no idea it was there. Um, and uh, lots of things could kill me at any point in time. I ride a bike in New York City. Like, listen, <laughs> no. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, I don't feel safer. Special thanks to Sarah Svoboda, Ben Bishop, Lou Baldanza, and Amanda McCormick. This episode was produced by Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, editing by Sam Greenspan. Vice News Reports is produced by Sophie Cazes, Jen Kinney, and Adriana Tapia. Our senior producers are Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, Julia Nutter, and Sam Greenspan. Our supervising producer is Ashley Cleek. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Evan Sutton, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Mixing by Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producers are Adiza Egan and Stephanie Karayuki. Annie Aviles is our executive editor, and Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Durmross. 
I know I say this every week, but I still mean it. If you could take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be so lovely. It really does help other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week. 